you ever had anyone compliment you? And I don't mean just a little. They pour it on. They go on and on until, unless you're particularly starved for compliments, <laughs> you actually start to get embarrassed. And you know it's coming. Are you ready for it? Yep, there it is. Either they want something from you. <laughs> Watch out for that smiling salesman or that favor-seeking relative or a beggar. Or, uh, or they're about to give you an exception. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, I'm not saying... I'm not trying to say that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to trick his readers. <laughs> I happen to think it's a good idea to sandwich difficult instruction, shall we call it, between compliments, assuming the accolades are actual as they are here. But we know an exception's coming. <laughs> it reminds me of a history prop my oldest brother had. The guy loved his work. And whenever he'd get to a really critical juncture in history, He'd go along telling them how things seemed to be ever more exciting until he would pop up on his toes, thrust his finger in the air and shout out, But! And it's a mighty big but! <laughs> Doug, Doug swore the guy never got it. <laughs> but maybe he did. Maybe he was trying to emphasize the point in a way he knew they'd not soon forget. Paul is trying to emphasize but he's also softening the blow. The but, the exception, is coming. Notice he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Well, thus, what does he mean, thus? He's saying, this is what you ought to be doing. Thus being all that he's already talked about. This thus, he will soon point at from a different angle. First, though, he must get to the exception, the problem, the mighty big but. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Uh, this is, of course, where Paul starts with what is wrong, a pretty specific wrong. Apparently, these two women are in disagreement. They are certainly not in agreement in the Lord. The idea of agreement or unity is something that Paul has spent some time emphasizing already started way back in the first chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In this introduction of the concept of unity, of together workingness, he says it three ways. One spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Good picture of unity, of working together. He said it in a more direct sense in chapter 2, a very specific way, after saying, if you belong to Christ and the Spirit lives within you, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't miss that they complete his joy as they share a single focus, same one mind, and share the same love, which he also describes as being in full accord, starting and ending with mind, Centering on love. Let's get on to that very specific part. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Again, saying this multiple ways. 
Don't seek for your own benefit or think you deserve to be treated better than everybody else. Be humble, living as if everyone else is, in fact, the more important person. Not looking out for numero uno, but others. This is what one mind agreeing in the Lord looks like. Don't seek for your own benefit or believe you deserve to be treated better than anyone else. Be humble, living as if everyone else is more important. Not looking out for yourself, but others. But in the Lord. What did he mean by that? Back in chapter 2, still have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verse 1, which we didn't read, Paul says, if you are a Christian, have the same mind, one mind, same love, being in full accord, in this self-sacrificing way. Because that is what Christ is like. This is the mind Jesus has given us. If you are, in fact, is. But let's go back to our verse of the day. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. It's kind of amazing that Paul actually named these two. Can you imagine how embarrassing that must have been for them? Now, remember how it worked back then. Paul writes a letter and he sends it with someone, Paphroditus in this case, who then stands in front and reads it aloud to the entire congregation as everyone hears it for the first time. And he says, hey, you lady and you sister, quit this fighting and start working together for the Lord. <laughs> Everybody's looking at them out of the corner of their eye, trying not to stare. But come on, the apostle Paul nailed them right there in the letter. And as for Paul, well, it's risky to name names. The apostles told the Jewish council that they were the ones who crucified Christ and they ended up beaten and in jail. And again, Jesus named some of the same names on that council. And well, you remember what they did to him. And John the Baptist told Herod it was wrong to have his brother's wife like he did. It cost him his head. Literally, they gave him a necktie buzz cut. <laughs> okay. Some hundreds of years ago, in France, execution day came. Three men were on the chopping block. A pastor, a shady businessman, and an engineer. The pastor had been arrested on trumped-up charges by the local magistrate for <clears throat> calling him out on his sins. He was sent to face the guillotine first. The executor says, do you want to put this hood on you so you don't see it coming? No, the pastor replies. I want to face whatever God has coming my way. So you want to lie face down or face up? Face up, face up. I want to be ready to see my Savior. They lay him on the bench, neck under the blade. He says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And the executioner pulls the cord. The blade comes screaming down and stops about six inches above his neck. The crowd screams out, God has saved him! God has saved him! And the magistrate is so frustrated. He looks at the executioner, shrugs his shoulders and shakes his head. They have no choice. They have to let him go. Everybody cheers and it's the businessman's turn. He's no fool. So he says, no hood, face up. Sure enough, the same thing happens. And the blade stops six inches above his neck. There's more cheering and they have to let him go as well. The last one is the engineer who has chewed the hood and lies looking up at the sharp edge of the guillotine. The executioner once more steps to his place. He reaches for the cord and just then the engineer points up and says, Oh wait, stop. I think I see the problem. Sometimes it's not smart to say certain things. <laughs> 
So why would Paul think it was okay to call out Yodia and Syntyche by name? Well, simple. They must have been mature enough to take it. So it would actually help them. They would grow spiritually with this correction, this exception. These women certainly do better than the audience James had. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now understand, James is very Jewish. And he is as other Jews would expect, using hyperbole, extreme exaggeration here. Still, those he was writing to had some serious non-agreeing going on. Did you catch that they don't ask? That means they didn't pray at all. That's a serious, serious problem. But back to Euodia and Syntyche. It takes significant maturity to accept correction. In fact, these women should be commended. I mean, sure, they had their troubles. But if they could take a correction this public, they, they, they are some seriously mature women. I'd go so far to say as the ability to be corrected so directly is a measure of maturity. Everybody makes mistakes. What you do with correction, since we all need it from time to time, is the issue. So how does this specific correction take form? What, what exactly is supposed to happen here? Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. It clearly wasn't enough for Paul simply to say, okay, guys, get along. <laughs> Let's not be overly simplistic here. Getting along is a lot of work. And these women were going to need some help. Whoever this true companion is, is to help them out. It probably is Epaphroditus who delivered and is most likely reading the letter. But why did Paul mention this issue between these two women? It would appear this was an ongoing problem. Their messenger, Epaphroditus, had to have told Paul about the problem. Maybe Euodia and Syntyche asked him to get Paul to make a judgment for them. Ask Paul, he'll decide which of us is right. They want the big cheese to weigh in. And what's Paul do? He says, no, <laughs> I'm not going to solve this for you. Work it out with the help of your local boy there. Your pastor, Epaphroditus, will help you. And also, Pastor Clement can give you his thoughts. And while we're at it, let everyone who's worked with me, who is a true believer, tell you what to do. <laughs> do you get they're all listening to this? Everyone in the church is hearing this. And Paul said, it is not optional to help these women settle their dispute. This is a corporate responsibility. Everyone is responsible together. Disagreements in the church are not simply, that is to say, not only personal disagreements. They always affect the whole church. And the whole church, Paul says, needs to be involved in the correction. So what is the correction? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Ah, uh, what? What does that have to do with disagreeing? And it's a command and it's repeated. 
Paul also gave the same command two other times. He used the word joy five other times. He used rejoice in six other places in just this little letter. He means it. But how can rejoicing be a command? How can we rejoice on command? Remember what Paul said just before this? We talked about it last week. Our citizenship is in heaven. If we find ourselves in the midst of a dispute, it is good to remember that we have eternal life and to rejoice in that truth. The petty little differences that we have here will not exist in that wonderful new creation. (laughs) Might they not fade away as we consider what is ours through Christ and rejoice in that? And then to continue the rejection, Paul goes on to say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is kind of a difficult Greek word to translate in this structure. It means reasonable behavior, that is to say, gentleness with others. In fact, everywhere else in the New Testament this word is used, it is translated gentleness. One could say that reasonableness is contentment even in the face of persecution or other troubles like, say, disagreements with fellow believers. Be gentle even with those with whom you have a disagreement. It's that forbearing spirit that we read about earlier. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul has said, first rejoice, then be reasonable or gentle. And now he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. All of this, you see, is the answer to the problem which caused the disagreement. This is what is right, what they should be doing. We might call it the content of the help that is to be given to these women. Why do they need help? Well, they're having a disagreement. Yeah, but why are they having a disagreement? Because they're anxious. Anxiousness is the root problem. The Lord is at hand, almost certainly a reference to his return. We're always to keep that in mind, right? Okay, Rick, I don't get it. What does it have to do with anxiousness? What are they anxious about? What they don't have? The disagreement itself? Maybe wanting what the other has? Are they anxious about their enemies? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Anxious. Let me read you some illustrations about anxiousness that Jesus gave. I'll start with the conversation as Matthew recorded it. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What are they anxious about? These people Jesus is talking to, their life, what they eat, their drink, their body, their clothes. So to what was Jesus pointing? Just the basic commodities of life? Yes, I, th- I think that's part of it. But there's definitely more. Listen to what Luke recorded at the end of this conversation. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When Paul talks about anxiousness, he's not just talking about things that happen to us or just what we need to survive. Jesus said, don't worry about the basic needs of life. That's not what is important. It's really about the heart, our hearts, that on which we think. The root of Euodia and Syntyche's conflict is where their hearts are. They want a treasure that is not heavenly in nature. They're anxious about something here. Do we get anxious because our heart is pointed more at earthly things than heavenly? (laughs) Money or possessions or glory or power, whatever. Do we maybe get into disagreements because we are seeking for that which is earthly? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If we truly believe, if we are heaven-focused, then disagreements fade away. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Rather than anxiety for these earthly treasures, let's look towards heaven. For the here and now. Think about it. What would their request be? Well, what they are anxious about. If we are concerned, anxious, the answer is prayer. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Some time ago, as we studied the way to joy on a Wednesday evening, we talked about prayer. Supplication is a prayer of heart-level pleading that intense need from the depths of our soul. And don't forget to be thankful, to rejoice. When we get all this lined up, we'll find something happening in our souls. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The natural result of living in Christ, reasonableness, gently dealing with others, rejoicing, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, is peace from him. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It's not illogical, but it is beyond comprehension. It is God himself guarding our hearts and minds. It's a lot like every change that comes over us when we become his not always overnight not usually quickly but who we are changes our hearts our minds shift their focus and before we know it we find our souls floating in the peace of god 
peace. This too is a thermometer as well as a thermostat. If we don't find peace that surpasses all understanding, then maybe we need to examine our hearts to see whether we truly have our minds set on heavenly things, that our treasure is in heaven. For our conclusion today, I want to read through the summary of this instruction that Paul gives right after this. Uh, We'll study it later, but today let's just read it. And by the way, he uses the word finally in the sense of think of it this way. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's reasonableness in summary. (laughs) Think whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think this way. Think right. Think like Christ. Remember, we're talking about conflict between believers. So all this thinking has to go somewhere, right? And it does. Thinking leads to action. What you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Act this way. Live right. Live like Christ. Working out conflicts in Christ. Then we will have more than the inexplicable peace of God. We will have the God of peace. The God of peace will be with us. Eventually, when that day comes, we're not going to even remember that there was a conflict. (laughs) But even now, the God of peace can be with us. Paul entreated Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So to entreat, to ask a person earnestly, beseech, implore, beg. It's important to agree in the Lord. I entreat you to agree in the Lord. And now we know what it means. (laughs) We are all to help one another. Help to learn to rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. (laughs) We can live gently, reasonably. We remember that Jesus is coming again for us, so we're not anxious. Instead, we go to him with everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. So we won't need any correction, any exception. And then, then his peace envelops us like a warm blanket on a cold day until that day comes when all will be bright and holy, when we will be one, one in mind, one in spirit, forever and ever. Father, thank you. Thank you for these two women that we will not meet until the next creation, the new creation, Yodi and Syntyche. (laughs) Wow, they must have been something. And even they had troubles. (laughs) Even though they worked with Paul the Apostle to advance the gospel, they lost sight of the future. They lost sight and got to be anxious. Lord, if great saints like that can mess up, we know we're going to. And so we pray that you help us 
as time goes on to make sure that we remember to keep our focus on the future that we have in you through Jesus Christ. And to put aside all those things that make us anxious, put aside any disagreements, and have the same mind that is in Christ, that mind that helps us to think about the pure, all those good things. Help us, Father, as we move that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message, First for Dead Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to visit us online at southbeachhope.org where you can download full transcripts of this and other sermons as well as other helpful files. We are so pleased that you can worship with sermon.net, but hopefully we'll someday be able to praise God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.